0: I'm going to start by reading that. So, uh, Matthew 25, verse 14. It's the bit that's titled, The Parable of the Bags of Gold. Let me read it. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who'd received one bag bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I've not sown and gather where I've not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. As we uh, open up the Bible, as we look at these stories that Jesus told, um, our hope and prayer is that God speaks to us through them. That we experience uh, God speaking into our lives, and um, the words that we need to hear. That's why, as a church, we love to open the Bible. We look, love to look at these things. We love to chat about them. Uh, and as we do that, we also want to remember that um, this week there's a group of guys from Grace Church who are down at Word Alive. Um, so uh, they're down there. There's. Um about half the church, um, are uh, down in Wales at the moment. Um, But we're praying the same for them as we're praying for ourselves. We're praying that as they meet um, hundreds of miles away, that God will be there speaking words of life into them. They will come back refreshed, built up. Am I breaking something? Is it me? Um, yeah, that they will come back refreshed uh, and uh, that God will have worked in them. So I'm going to pray that that happens because none of that happens um, by me being brilliant um, or uh, simply by us being attentive. It happens through uh, God doing what he's always done, which is speaking words of life into our uh, world. So let me pray that that will uh, happen this happening for us uh, and for those guys down in Wales. Father God, we thank you that um, you are a God who uh, speaks things that aren't into being. Lord God, I thank you that as we look at the story of the world, we're told that you spoke um, all of creation, everything that we see, you spoke into being. And Lord God, we pray this afternoon that as we hear your words um, that you spoke when you were on earth, and as we hear you speaking them afresh to us, Lord God, we pray that in our lives you would speak into being things that are not. We pray that you would be uh, changing us, transforming us, encouraging us, uh, uh, um, giving us what we need, maybe things that we don't even recognize that we need. And Lord God, we would pray that we would experience the creative and life-giving power of your words this afternoon. And Lord God, as we pray that for ourselves, we pray that for those uh, guys that are down in Wales um, at that Christian conference this week. Um, Lord God, we pray that as they meet with other Christians, you would be speaking um, into their lives. There would be a time of encouragement, a time of challenge uh, and a time where you continue to do your good work uh, in them during this week. Yellow yeah, God, I pray that you would uh, give us um, supernatural powers of concentration and I pray that you would enable us to be able to um, recognize the words that you're speaking to us this afternoon. Amen. So um, as Amy said uh, at the start, we're, this is the last week we have, uh, we're going to spend looking at these stories Jesus told. And I, I love uh, looking at stories. I particularly love um, stories uh, like this that Jesus told, where he tells a story, but at no point does he say, oh, but this is what it means. The story speaks for itself. It's as we sit and wrestle with it and think about it that we experience God speaking into our lives. And, and as with all these sto- other stories, as we look at this story, we're going to find God challenging the way that we view ourselves, so, so who is it that we think we are? We're going to find God challenging who we think he is. What, what kind of God is the God who created the heavens and the earth? And this, we're going to find it challenging what we think that Jesus is doing. See, that's why Jesus told these stories. These stories are often um, different to what people expected God to be like, what people thought they were like, and what people thought Jesus was doing. So we're going to find him turning some of those things uh, upside down. So, so let's just check that we've got our head around the story to begin with. So, so this is a story, broadly speaking. There's a rich man. He's got, he's got loads of money, like unimaginable amounts of money, um, like bags and bags of gold, you know, just the kind of things that we all have hanging around. Uh, and so he's got these bags of gold and he's got these uh, servants and he's going to go away on a long journey. So he's like, right, I'm going to put this, I'm going to give this to my servants I'm going to look for them to put that money to work, for them to invest it. Uh, And so he he gets people in. He gets the first servant in. He gives him five bags of gold. And he says, go take it. Next servant, he gives him two bags of gold. Last servant, he gives him one bag of gold. So they've all been given what is a large amount of money, but not exactly the same amount of money. And and having done this, the first servant goes out and he takes these five bags of gold and he puts it to work uh, and he earns more. So he turns that five bags of gold into 10 bags of gold. Same happens with the servant who's given two bags of gold. But the servant who's given one bag of gold does something different. He, he takes it, he digs a hole, he puts it in the hole, and he just leaves it there. Now, now we're told in the story that the master is a, is a long time. So he goes on this journey, and it's a long time. He's away for a long time. Uh, and eventually, after this long time, he comes back. Uh, and he calls his servants to him, and he says, right, What have you done with the money? Uh, and so the first servant says, well, look, I took the money you gave me, five bags of gold, and I've turned it into 10 bags of gold. And the master says, well done, you've done a good job. Come now, I'll, I'll put you in charge of more things, seeing as you've proved yourself faithful with that, and come and share in my happiness. A very similar thing happens with the second servant. He says, look, I took you two bags, I've turned it into four. He says exactly the same thing to that servant. He says, you've done well. He says, I will put you in charge of more things, seeing as you've proved yourself faithful with that. Come and share my happiness. But with the third servant, something different happens. So the third servant comes in, and he starts off the bat by going, "Well, let me let me explain what I'm about to say." We all do this, don't we? You know, when you when you've got some news that you don't really want to want to share, you start with like the preamble of like, "Just so you understand why I haven't done the job." Here are all the reasons. And he starts with that preamble, "Why I haven't done the job." And he says, "Well, I knew that you were a, a harsh master. Now, if you're looking to like justify having not done a job, I'd st- I'd suggest not starting with a criticism of the person who asked you to do it." But anyway, this, this servant doesn't do that. So he goes in and he says, I knew that you were a harsh master. I know that you reap um, where you haven't sown, that you harvest when you haven't scattered seed. In essence, he's saying, Look, I know that you want something for nothing. Um, uh, and so I, I, was, I was worried about this and I was scared. So I buried it in the, in the ground. Here's, here's a bag of gold. Now, the master is less than impressed with this, he, he's furious. And he, he questions, he says, well, if you knew that that's the kind of person I am, if you knew that I was hard and difficult and that I wanted to get something for nothing, then why didn't you at least put it, give it uh, to some bankers so they could invest in? and at least I'll have something back for it? And so he takes the bag of gold away from that and he gives it to the person who had been given five and, and has ten that, and has that servant thrown out. That, that's in essence the story. Now, as with all these stories, the first thing we've got to say is, Jesus is not trying to teach us lessons about investment, okay? What we do with these stories often is we just go, we go, oh, well, you know, that doesn't seem like a very sensible way to do it, or maybe you shouldn't do it like that, or is it right for someone to invest their money and expect? That's not the point of the story. The point of the story isn't trying to make a point about how we invest our money, okay? That's not where we're going with this. In fact, we, we actually get told and we get shown very clearly what this story is about. If you just cast your eye down at the, the Bible in front of you, then you will, you will see that the context where this story comes makes it absolutely crystal clear what it is that Jesus is talking about here. If you look at um, chapter 25, verse 1, then you can see what he's talking about. He says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like... And then when he says in verse 14, again, it will be like, he's still talking about the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is here trying to teach us something about what the kingdom of heaven is like. So that's the point of the story. He's trying to teach us something about what the kingdom of heaven's like. And then if you look just before that story, so there's a little bit on um, the beginning of page 994 that says the day and hour known. then you'll start to see what's going on because Jesus just said, no one knows the day when the kingdom of God is going to finally come, when the kingdom of heaven is going to come. That moment where Jesus is going to return, he's going to usher in the kingdom of heaven, he started by saying, look, none of you know when that's going to be. It's unknown. Nobody knows what's going to ha- when that's going to happen. And then he tells three stories, the parable of the 10 virgins, the parable of the bags of gold, and the sheep and the goats. He tells these three stories. And all those three stories are about the same thing. They're about how do you make sure that you're ready for the moment when that happens. That's what the stories are about. It's, they're, they're really straightforward. They're three stories about what's going to happen when Jesus returns and what, how do we live now knowing that one day the kingdom of heaven is going to come. That's what this story is about. So if you want to know what this story is about, you can see just by looking at what's around it, it's about the fact that the kingdom of heaven is one day going to come. Jesus will return. He will bring in the new heavens and the new earth so how do we live now knowing that one day that's going to happen? The central point in all of this is you need to live now to make sure that you're ready for then. That, that's, that's the central point. Now, have you ever been caught not ready for something? Like, like just horribly unprepared? I had, a, I had a situation like this once. And, I mean, I'm sure I've had many. But I had one that, that's particularly memorable. So um, when I was in Hartlepool 10 years ago, or whenever it was, and I decided I was going to leave the job that I was in at the time. And so I got to the point where I was like, I, need, I just need to find something to do. Like, apparently bills need to be paid, and so I've got to work. So I, I need to find myself a job. And so I just applied for any old jobs. I was just like, just took applications out anywhere, see, see what comes from it. Anyway, I got... Um, I, I went through the assessment process and I got an interview with um, Deloitte, uh, like one of uh, just a uh, business that do who knows what they do, but they get paid for it. Um, and so they, they do stuff, and um, you you get you. So I got an interview, and um, and the interview was in Leeds, and it was a uh, I can't remember ten o'clock or something, but it meant I had to get the seven seven thirty train out of Hartlepool. So I I the night before I kind of thought well given that this is like a corporate world of which I know nothing about, the only thing I do know is that you're meant to like look somewhat respectable in those kind of businesses, so I was like, it's not a problem. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna get up in the morning, I'm gonna have a shave, make myself look respectable, get, get ready for this interview. So I get up in the morning at like half six or whatever it is and, and I get out my electric razor. I'm always an electric razor kind of guy because I just can't bother shaving. Um, so I get out my electric razor and I start to shave uh, and the battery runs out halfway through me shaving my beard. So I've got half a beard at this point. Uh, and I'm like, I'm like, right, well this is okay because I'll just find the charger. So I look around for the charger, can't find the charger anywhere for my electric razor. So I've got this like half beard and I'm like, what do I do? I'm like, I know it's fine. I'll just have to wet shave. Like that's the only solution to this problem. So I'm like, but I don't have any shaving foam because I don't, we-. so I am like, it's fine. Sarah must have some. So I look around, Sarah doesn't have any shaving foam either. So we have no shaving foam and I have no electric razor and, and I have half a beard and, and the clock's ticking. And, and so Sarah... Um, she must love me very much. She legs it up to the top of the road to like the local Tesco Express, and she finds like this can of shaving foam. She like buys it and comes back with it. But by this point, if I don't get in the car and drive down to the train station, I'm not going to get on the train to get to the interview. So it doesn't matter how clean-shaven I might be, because I'm not going to be there. So, so she's like, look, I'll tell you what. What I'll do is I'll just put like a razor and the shaving foam in a bag, and you'll just have to do it in the train on the way. <laughs> right? So I'm like, this sounds like a good solution. So I get, it all, I get it all there and I put it in the bag and I get down there, drive down, get to the, get to the train station, get in the train. All the toilets are locked the entire, the, uh, the entire journey. They're all out of order for some reason. Apparently there's no running water in the train. So I couldn't actually get into a toilet uh, on the train to sort out my beards. And um, so I just had to go to the interview like that. Like, that was all I could do. So, so at this point, I turn up to the interview and I'm like, I don't, I don't think this is exactly like what you were looking for. But I can only assume that like equal opportunities like meant that they couldn't discriminate on the base of having stupid facial hair because um, uh, it, didn't, it, didn't, it didn't seem to hold it against me. But. But we've all had those moments where you're just horribly unprepared for something. I mean, that was entirely my fault. Like, I knew the thing was coming. I knew when it was coming. I knew exactly what I thought I needed to do in order to be ready. And I still failed to be ready for it. Now, now you will have had experiences where you yourself have failed to be ready for something. It may be that you've been caught unawares by something. Something happened and you were like, oh, I'm just not ready for that. Or it may be like me that you're just not very good at getting ready for things. The question we've got to ask ourselves, and I just want us to think about a little bit this afternoon, is how, how do we get ready for the kingdom of heaven? How do we get ready for that moment when Jesus returns? Oh, so well and good to say you've got to be ready for it. You've got to live now so that you're ready for that day. But what does that actually mean? What, what does being ready look like? Uh, and I want, to, I want to start by suggesting that to be ready, you first have to understand what your role is. Like who you are, what it is that you're meant to be. Imagine that you're in a in a play. You're in a you're in a play. Uh, and you spend you spend weeks and weeks learning your lines at home, you know, going over them and over and over them and over them. And you've learned all the lines and you turn up to the play, and I don't know, it's Romeo and Juliet, because that's a play that I've heard of. Um and so and you're there and you've learned all the lines to Romeo, only to turn up and be told, Oh, actually you're playing Juliet. Like, it's not that useful. Like, you're not ready because you didn't understand what your role was. Even worse, worse, imagine if you turned up and they were like, oh, actually, you're on lighting. It's like, okay, I've learned all these lines, but I know nothing about lighting. Or even worse, you turn up and you're like, you're not actually in a play. We've signed you up for the curling team. Like, you know, you know, you can't be ready if you don't know what your role is. Like, what is it that you're meant to be? What is it that you're meant to be doing? And I think that that's part of the issue that humanity's had throughout history. That's, that's been humanity's problem, hasn't it? Like, we just don't know what our role is. Like, what am I supposed to be doing? Who am I meant to be? What kind of life am I supposed to lead? We, we tend to think our role, our role is the role of master. That's the role we want. That's the role we spend our life trying to live up to and to be. We, we think, my role, I'm the one who gets to call the shots. We act as if we're the ones in control and everyone out there is out there primarily to serve us. That's the purpose of everything else. Okay, I'm the important one, I'm the master, everything else is about how it relates to me. So other people are only worth knowing to the extent that they make me happy. And that, that might sound brutal, but, like, that is pretty much what passes for, like, wise, sage advice at the moment, isn't it? You know, just, you know, avoid toxic people, uh, surround your life with positive people, with people who make you happy. Now like that's what we say, because we want the role of master. Everybody else is a servant to me. Their role is to make me happy. The world itself exists to meet my needs, to make me feel happy and content. And that's why we feel personally affronted every time our life doesn't turn out the way we think it should do. Because the world isn't living up to what it's supposed to do. The world isn't meant to make my life hard, it's meant to make it easy. The world isn't meant to make me sad, it's meant to make me happy. I'm the master, everything else exists to serve me. We even impose this view on God. God exists to make me happy. That's, That's how we think about it. And you see that all the time because one of the common arguments people have against the existence of God is, well, if God exists, then why is there so much suffering in the world? You see, what sits underneath that is this view that God exists primarily to make me happy. And because I'm not happy, he can't exist. We apply it to everything. We're the master. Everything else is there to serve me to make me happy. You see, in short, human beings act like gods. That's the role we want. That's really what the whole story at the beginning of the Bible of the fall of humanity, Adam and Eve in the garden, that's what it's all about. The whole story is about the fact that God said, this is your role, and we said, oh no, actually we want your job. We want to be gods. We want to be masters. We want to rule over everything. Here's the first thing I think you've got to understand if you want to be ready for when Jesus returns. You've got to understand your role, and this is your role. This is every human being's role, stewards and servants. That's our role. That's what we were created to be, stewards and servants. We're stewards because we're called to take care and make good use of the things that God gives us. That's what happened at the beginning. God created a good world. And then he created people, and he said, I want you to care for this world. I want you to develop this world. I want you to cultivate this world. He entrusted us with his good creation for us to look after, to use well, to enjoy. Just like in this story, the master gave these these people his wealth for them to use, and as they used that, they are invited to share in the master's happiness. A, it's, a, it's a startling phrase he uses twice with the servants. He says, come and share in my happiness. That's how it is with us. God gave us his wealth. He gave us his good world. He gave us abilities and personalities. And he asked us to care for his world and to share in his happiness. We're stewards. That's our role. Given something good, ask to use it well. And we're servants called to serve our master. God is a kind, generous, loving master, but he is still the master. He's the master because he's the one who created everything. He's the one who sees everything and rules over everything. Our role is to care for God's creation, to serve the God who loves us and generously gives us good gifts for us to use and enjoy. Now, I'm aware that as I, as I talk about that, as I say, look, your role is steward and servant, I'm aware that you might be sitting there like bristling, just like slightly on edge, slightly uncomfortable with that kind of idea. I don't want to be a servant. Who wants to be a servant? I don't want that. I don't want to be a steward. Why should I serve God? Why should I look after his stuff? You see, that's the problem. Human beings have always reacted against that role. It's a good role. It's the role we were created for from the very beginning, but we've always rejected that role. We've always said, instead, God, we want your role. We don't want to be servants. We want to be masters. We don't want to be stewards. We want to be kings. That's the human condition. Created to be servants and stewards. Desperate to be masters and kings. The problem is, we're not very good masters and we're not very good kings, we're not very good at it. And you'd have to take my word for it. You might be sitting there thinking, "I'd be a pretty good master and king. Thank you very much. But the story of human history is we're not very good at it. Because good masters and kings well, they're like gods. they're generous. A good, a good master and a good king is generous. But we're not. We're selfish. We're greedy. Good masters and kings, they look after their kingdoms, but we use and abuse our kingdom. We exploit people, we damage our world. Good masters and kings rule fairly and wisely, but we are often unfair and unwise. We often lack the knowledge and discernment to rule well. If you want to be ready for Jesus' return, you first need to understand your place in the story. And your place is not God's. Your place is not the place of the master. Your place is steward and servant, not master and king. You see, that's the first key to being ready. You've got to understand your role. The second key to being ready is understanding who God is, or, or more specifically, what God is like. Why does the third servant not invest the money? Like, why does he fail to be the servant and the steward that the master wanted him to be? What is it that goes wrong? Well, he tells us why he thinks he doesn't do it. He, He tells us exactly, you can see it in one of the verses, verse 24. This is why he says, he says, I didn't invest your money and I didn't use your money well, because I know that you are hard and harsh. He says, I I know that you're hard, harsh, that you're unfair, that you're grabbing, that you always want more. And so because of that, he didn't serve him. And I think that's interesting. And I I think it's interesting because... Well, partly because it doesn't really make sense, but also because it's not how the master seems. Like, just read through the story again. Do you get any hint that the master is harsh and hard in this story? He generously gives them huge sums of money. He then, when they come back, is quick with his praise. So he's nothing but positive with the other two, and he's he's quick to praise them. He's quick to reward them. He rewards them by giving them more stuff, and then he invites them to share in his happiness. The master does not seem hard or primarily about getting more stuff for himself. He seems kind and eager to give more stuff. If you you look at the end of the story, as far as we can tell, the guy who he gives five bags of gold to, who then comes and makes 10, he still has all 10 bags. Because when he says give him another, he says give that bag of gold to the one who has 10. He still has it all. The master's not primarily about how much stuff can I get. That doesn't seem to be what motivates him. The servant fails to be ready because he fails to accept his role. And he fails to accept his role because of what he believes about his master. He misunderstands the character of his master. But like all misunderstandings, there's just enough truth in it for us to be able to convince ourselves that it's true. Because the master does ask him to take his money and make more. And you can imagine how the man could talk himself into it. You can imagine him sitting at home with his bag of gold and saying, why should I work when the master's not working? Why should I try and make more money? He's not doing anything. If he wants it, why doesn't he go out and do it? Oh, and then what if I lose it? What if I invest it and I end up losing money? Then he'll be furious with me. There's just enough truth in it for him to be able to talk himself into. Yeah, my master's unfair, and he's greedy, and he's ungenerous. He's harsh. There's just enough truth for him to be able to justify, actually, I'd be better off just burying it and not doing anything. You see, that's not what's actually going on here. But you can see how he could convince himself The master's offer is actually mutually beneficial. The servant gets paid and is able to share in the money which is made. The master's heart is not hard, intending to use his servants for his own gain, but rather to involve them in his work and ultimately his happiness. The servant interprets what is going on in a certain way and so misunderstands the heart of the master. And because of that, at the end of this story, he misses out on the rewards. He misses out in sharing in the master's happiness. So, if the first thing we need to do to be ready is we need to understand our role as servants and stewards, the second thing is we need to have a right view of God. If we're going to be able to be servants and stewards in the right way, we need to have the right view of what God is like. It's easy to think that God is a certain way. It's easy for us to fall into the same trap this servant does here, to start thinking of God as a hard and harsh master, always wanting something for nothing, constantly calling on us to do more and more for him. We can become afraid of God, like God is just looking down on us, looking for us to slip up, looking for us to get something wrong. And so we become afraid of God. We become scared of his anger towards us. And let me, let me just be as clear as I can about this. Some Christians have thought that that is a helpful way to, to motivate Christian living. Th- that they have. You know, some people have thought, well, if you don't tell people that if you don't live a certain way, God's going to be furious with you, then why would they live that way? You know, if you give them too much of the grace and the generosity of God, well, people will never live the kind of lives they want that God wants them to. But this parable is really helpful here. Because the master even says to the servant, if you thought I was so hard and you were so afraid, why didn't that motivate you to work? You see, his reasoning doesn't really make sense. I knew you were hard and harsh, so I didn't do anything. It doesn't really make any sense, but it is True. Because although we'd think if you were scared of your master, you'd work really hard, the truth is that's not how it works. Fear and suspicion are very poor motivators for hard work. We work less well for a God that we don't like, don't trust, and are afraid of than we will for one who we see as generous, kind, and quick to reward. it's the grace of God which motivates us to work hard for him much more than being afraid ever will. It's when we recognize that God calls us to steward, steward his stuff and serve him as a way of inviting us to share in his happiness, that's when we'll be motivated to live our lives working hard for him. A view of God where he is just up there looking to catch us out for something, calling on us for more and more, quick to be angry. It's an an untrue view of what God is like and it will not motivate you to live the kind of life God wants you to live. Which I suppose brings us to the crux of the matter. What's this story all about? Why does Jesus bother telling it? When it comes down to it, Maybe our greatest enemy, maybe your greatest enemy when trying to be ready for Jesus' return, maybe it's nothing more sophisticated than just laziness. Maybe that's your greatest enemy when it comes to being ready for Jesus' return. It's easy to think that, oh, the things that make it hard to be a Christian, well, they're things like suffering, doubts, persecution. Temptation—you know—they're the things that make it hard to live the Christian life. What if it's... What if they're not? What if the thing that makes it hard to live a, uh, a Christian life is just laziness? We're just lazy. We don't want to work hard for our Master. We don't want to do the work of pursuing Him. We get lazy at meeting with His people, reading His Word, praying, and so we stop, and our hearts become hard towards God, and we end up not living for Him, not serving Him, and then not ready for His return. What if we don't suddenly just question it all and give up, but we just get lazy? We just stop doing the stuff, find ourselves nowhere and not ready. We don't want to love other people. We can't be bothered. It just feels like hard work. Much easier to stay at home with a book or a computer game or Sky Sports. So we become selfish self-obsessed and end up not living for him not experiencing him and then crucially not ready when he comes back we don't want to do the work God has prepared for us we don't want to care for his creation invest in his church fulfill our responsibilities to friends and family so we buy a caravan and avoid it and end up resistant to God wasting the opportunities he's given us not ready for his return Laziness is addictive. But it's not, it's not a good addiction. It's an unhealthy addiction. It doesn't make us feel good. It prevents us from experiencing the full lives God intends for us. It poisons our view of ourselves and our view of God. And ultimately, it will prevent us from sharing in God's happiness. And yet, despite all of those things that make it unhealthy, it's pretty hard to shake pretty hard to shake. Often it promises more than it delivers. The thought of a lazy day feels so appealing until you get to the end of the day. And it's perhaps more of a temptation in the affluent West than it has ever been anywhere else throughout time and space. Because what is it in this story that the third servant does wrong, and why is it he does wrong? Doesn't kill anyone, doesn't steal anything. What's it that he's criticised for? It's just laziness. He just doesn't do what he's supposed to do. He's just laziness, lazy, and his laziness prevents him from sharing in the master's happiness. I'm going to wrap this up. And I just think the challenge is, is really, really straightforward. Uh, and it's this. Don't waste your life. That's the challenge. That's why Jesus tells a story. Don't waste your life. God created you to know him, to enjoy him, to care for his world, to serve him. If you fail to do that, you will waste the life that God gave you. Our world is full of people who feel like they've wasted their life. It's at the heart of much of the apathy and lack of, emoti- of motivation which characterizes millennials and iGens. It's at the heart of most midlife crisis, crises where you sit there and go, wait a minute, what have I even done with my life? It's at the heart of most people's regrets as they reach the end of their lives and look back and think, what did I even do? It's depressing to waste our lives, but it's really easy to do. You do it one day at a time. You waste a day, and then you waste another, and then you waste another. Don't bury what God has given you. Use it. Use it to know and enjoy Him. Use it to serve Him. Use it to care for His world. And as you find your role as servant and steward, you will find yourself able to share in God's happiness now and ready to be welcomed into his new creation when he returns. Let me pray for us as we finish. Father God, life can feel complicated and overwhelming. We can find ourselves bouncing around, trying to work out what to do, thinking how we use our time. Father God, I just pray that you would help us to recognize what it is that you've called us to do. I pray for those of us here today who don't know you, who are maybe just... Unsure what they even think about you. Lord God, I pray that you would help them to experience your goodness and your generosity. And through that, to find themselves eager to take up their role as somebody who knows you, who loves you, who serves you, and who cares for the world that you've made. And Lord God, for those of us who do know you, I pray that you would help us to fight against our laziness. Look, God, I pray that you would help us to make the most of every opportunity you give us, of all the gifts and abilities that you've given us. And I pray that in doing that, we would find that we increasingly share in your happiness so that one day, at the end of time, we can stand before you and hear you say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen.